You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. We tend to really idealize fresh produce. That is also a place where it's very expensive, especially as stuff that's been pre-chopped. That kind of thing can be really expensive. And, you know, you can manage that through the seasons and there are deals and there can be great value. But can frozen fruits and vegetables are great, too. Her money is supported by Edelman Financial Engines. Growing wealth while supporting your family isn't easy, but with a well-crafted plan, you can take on anything. Visit planefe.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor today. Juggling finances can be overwhelming, but you can find a better balance. Hey everyone, welcome to Her Money. I'm your host, Jean Chatsky. Very glad to have all of you along with me today. Before I dive into the meat, haha, you'll know why in a second, of what is going to be a very exciting show, let me just give you one shout out for our Her Money Council. We'll talk more about it in depth later, but the Her Money Council is our insiders group. We are gathering our most supportive listeners and fans and asking you to take a survey for us, to show up for some special free events, to let us in on what you are most concerned about so that we can make sure that we reflect it in all of the programming that we do. And by the way, there's a little swag for the taking as well. If you want to join our Her Money Council, please just send us an email at contact at hermoney.com or follow the link in the show notes. So let me just say, I hope that our listeners who have been snowed in recently are able to see some sunlight peeping through and maybe get out and get some fresh air if it's not too cold. I know that winter, with all its snow and its ice, generally gets a bad rap, but I have to say I kind of love it. Not the sludge that accumulates in downtown Philly, but the cozy sweaters, my favorite fingerless gloves, and most of all, I just love winter foods. I love hearty soups and stews, thus the meat reference earlier, but veggie stews are fine with me as well, and every year I look for a new one to add to my repertoire. As we head into year number three of the pandemic, I do have to admit that even my favorite one-pot meals are feeling a little tired, or maybe it's me just tired of making them. And I know I can't be the only one, which is why I wanted to do a special cooking show earlier in this year to get us back on track with some excitement in the kitchen and some ideas for how we can create new favorites and save money while we're at it. I am so thrilled to introduce you all to Leanne Brown. And Leanne is the New York Times bestselling author of the cookbook, Good and Cheap, Eat Well on $4 a Day. She's also the author of the brand new title, Good Enough, a Cookbook. Leanne was named one of the most innovative women in food and drink by Food and Wine and was named to the prestigious Forbes 30 Under 30 list. She's originally from Canada, but now lives in New York with her husband and her daughter. Leanne, welcome. Hi, so good to be here. It's so great to see you. I want to dig into your book, but first I want to talk about how you got started because you have such an incredible story about how your first book 
came to be. (laughs) I mean, really, I could tell it because I've got notes on this and I know your story from reading about you, but why don't I let you tell it? Sure. Yeah, it is definitely it was an unusual way to put a cookbook out into the world. So my last book, Good and Cheap, it started out as my thesis project for my master's in food studies at NYU. And so really, it started out as a thesis. And it was a, a sort of a collection of recipes. It was a cookbook. But at the same time, I didn't sort of have these massive grand plans. I had hoped to share it with some of the nonprofits and places that I'd been volunteering with. It's a cookbook built for a sort of $4 a day sort of food stamps budget. So it was really meant to be a resource in a place that I think was really lacking in resources. And in particular, not just a resource, but something that was attractive, that made cooking sort of the beautiful life-affirming sort of thing that I really believe it to be, something that was full of, you know, hopefulness. And and I hope, you know, not false hope, but practicality and sensible information as well as sort of just the beauty and sensory sort of joys of cooking as well. And so after I graduated, I just put it on my little website, made it sort of freely available. And someone found it on Reddit and shared it, and it sort of went like mini viral there. And that gave me the confidence to kind of try to take it a step further. So I launched a Kickstarter to fund a print run of it. And it was wildly popular, just much more so than I expected. And through that, we self-published one version. My husband sort of helped me co-run the project, or I would have like fully lost my mind. And after that, or sort of during that, I found a publisher, which was something I'd never even thought to look for, just because it was a cookbook. The thing about Good and Cheap that was also unique was I made it freely available as a PDF, and it still is available on my website that way. But also the print version, we wanted to make sure that it was freely available for anyone who couldn't afford to purchase a cookbook. That was the idea. It's sort of like a cookbook for people who can't necessarily afford a cookbook at that point in their lives. And so for every copy sold, we donate one. And I just didn't think that a publisher would be interested in a project like that. But it turned out that several were, and I ended up working with Workman Publishing, who has been amazing to me and so supportive. And so we made another version of the book. We were able to kind of work with this audience that had found the work and had sort of given so much to me and offered so much information. So many people shared their stories and their experiences and what worked for them and what didn't. So I was able to kind of work on another version of the book. And then we put that one out into the world. And for every copy sold, we still donate one. And we work with hundreds of nonprofits across the country. And yeah, it's just like a project that really took on a life of its own. And I kind of just did my best to keep up with it. Amazing. I know it's been downloaded 15 million times. I know. I couldn't believe that. How how (laughs) many? It's incredible. How many copies have you sold? I don't even know off the top of my head with all the ones that are out there. I think something like around 300,000 or something. That is really, really impressive. I'm not sure. No, I mean, I'm sure it's something like that. That's incredible. So if that book changed the notion of what a cookbook could be, which is what people said about it, how would you describe this next one? How would you describe (laughs) Good Enough? And I have to say I love that title because I think Good Enough is what we should all be aspiring to in life, right? I'm so glad to hear you say that because I know it's one of those titles that's a little bit, you kind of either 
get it and really connect with it and see sort of the value and the the humanity in it, or you kind of go, oh, I don't know, good enough. <laughs> like, doesn't that sound like you're giving up? I um, hope that every me meal not. I put on the table is good enough, yes, right? Exactly. I, I mean, if I aimed for perfection when I cooked, I would never put anything on the table. No, exactly. And I think that was really the impetus to write it was so many people, myself included, really struggling sort of under the weight of perfectionism and the sort of culture of perfectionism around food and what food represents and how we sort of identify ourselves with it and that we kind of need to reorient, I think, around this notion of good enough and that good enough also isn't, it also isn't like a bar. It isn't something that looks a certain way all the time. It's something that really changes day by day and changes based on the circumstances that we're in. And so for me, good enough really did come from a lot of the experiences I had with good and cheap, with people sharing their stories, with a lot of people really struggling of course, my first book was so much about cost and money, and money is this really significant barrier, and I would never undervalue that. It's a huge, huge ongoing issue, a sort of systemic, like system-wide issue that we absolutely need to continue to address. But I found myself really drawn to so many people would come up to me and tell me that they struggled to cook or they felt like they were a bad cook. Like that over and over again, it was like, I'm a bad cook, Leanne. And a lot of the time it was like, and they were coming to a cooking event, you know, to meet a cookbook author and to get it. And it was like, they clearly had this love of food, this interest in it, this sense that it was important for them, for them personally. And yet they didn't feel good about themselves. There was this insecurity. And I was so moved by it and also kind of touched personally because I could really see myself in that experience. And because I realized that I kind of do the same thing. I really judge myself by the way that I cook and that I operate. And of course, in so many other aspects of my life as well, but specifically, you know, when I make something that turns out well, I would feel good. And when it didn't, I would begin to really question myself and wonder what I'm doing. And it was just became sort of too deep. And so good enough is like, it's really a cookbook about how we need to be able to think about cooking as part of our lives, you know? The way that people learn how to cook, basically, is often in a sort of false environment. It's sort of, you might see someone who's in a studio or has like a team around them making it beautiful or or even in a restaurant. It's like home cooking and restaurant cooking are so different. A restaurant, you really are meant to be pleasing an audience and sort of you need to have something consistent. There is sort of a bar that you have to reach. But at home, it's a completely different thing. You really are cooking for yourself, often those you love as well. And, you know, and that's teamwork. That's not about performing. That's not about someone evaluating you. And yet that's not sort of how we learn to cook. And I just thought it's so important to kind of try to reframe the way that we think about cooking to bring us some relief to this sort of really suffering that I could see so many people experiencing where food, you know, thinking about dinner every day became like stressful, became something where there was judgment around it, where there is judgment around it and where it can be harder and harder to find sort of motivation to do it. I think that's particularly true in the pandemic. We found ourselves and many of us Mm -hmm. still, we're stuck at home, right? We're home either by ourselves or with children or with spouses or with partners or with roommates. We aren't going to restaurants as much. That's in many parts of the country still true. 
ordering out gets expensive and tedious. Absolutely, yeah. And so this desire to do it ourselves, I think, is really, really understandable. But we need to give ourselves space and grace to do it in a way that's tasty, that's healthful, that's easy and not completely time-consuming because we're trying to get our kids schooled and we're trying to work. (laughs) But I think there's this fine line, and it dawned on me when I caught myself wiping plates, right? If you ever watch Mm. a cooking show, if you ever watch Chopped, before they put it in front of the judges, they all wipe the plates, right? And Mm. and I caught myself, like, wiping plates, and I thought, like, what the hell am I doing? Like, you know, I made this for my my (laughs) husband to eat. He should be grateful that somebody cooks for him. And what is this all about? So what's your theory of home cooking? How do you, I mean, are you a 30-minute meals girl? Are you a one-pot girl? Are you an Instapot? What's your jam for people who are not familiar with you? I truly do everything you said. It depends on, I think, the day, the week, you know, what else is going on? I think it's hard to limit it to just one style. I think that there are times when I want to do things incredibly simply, you know, after a long day, or if I have a really intense week, I want to do absolutely as little as possible. And then there are times where I do want to maybe spend a little bit more time. I think what I would say my style is overall, though, most of the time is I like to spend you know, 20 to 30 minutes, but not rushing around. You know, I like to take that time and try to like be calm with myself. I think that's something actually with 30 minute meals, like those shows where someone's making a 30 minute meal. Something I notice a lot of the time is there's this sort of the person make it is often a professional chef and through the whole show, they're rushing around doing one thing after the other really quickly. And so at the end they have a meal that happened to take 30 minutes and it looks incredible but it also looks really exhausting like you had to be and you've got like a pile of dishes and it's just like a whole thing and well again there's a place for that I think sometimes but for me and especially in the pandemic I think about everything that goes into the meal you know there's the planning there's the grocery shopping there's the dishes there's the cleanup there's so much and any way I can kind of minimize that noise around it so for me personally the cooking part is if I can kind of breathe and let go of everything it's actually very calming very sort of meditative experience I find I try to you know take deep breaths sort of like I would in a yoga class and I try to listen in and just experience all of the sensory that is going on like the smells actually you know sounds of like bubbling water for the pasta the sort of rhythmic chop 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 of something that I'm doing the sounds of you know a crisp vegetable breaking the way that I'm maybe chopping a bell pepper and a little bit of the juice sort of sprays up and like hits my cuticle and I can like feel the tingle of it like all of that I think is actually a really beautiful and nourishing experience but how can you possibly even notice any of that when you're like oh I gotta get it on the table as fast as possible and I gotta do this dish I gotta like do all the things or if you're worried also about pleasing others and I think what we find it probably like you were thinking with your husband you're like my husband is not gonna care about this actually if I think about it but at the same time we sort of imagine someone in our head and whether it's you know a chef on a tv show or some imagine like some you know maybe harsh teacher from 
20 years ago or whoever it is, there's a sort of judge in our minds. And if we're performing for them, we're going to be tight and we're going to be worried and we're not going to kind of be in the moment. And so I think my style and the style that I really want to share with others is sort of this reframing of like, you're the only person that really matters when it comes to cooking. I think so. Or at least the person who matters most. Yes, it's an exercise in pleasing others, but you count too. Mm -hmm. I want to get really tactical because that's what our listeners count on us to do. And so in terms of saving time, in terms of saving money, in terms of how to stock a pantry so that you don't realize that oh my God, I'm three quarters of the way into this exercise and I don't have basil. <laughs> yeah. You know, all of this meal planning talk has me thinking a little bit more about life planning. And we all know that raising kids, caring for aging parents, planning for retirement is a lot to manage, especially when you're trying to grow your wealth at the same time. Visit edelmanfinancialengines.com slash hermoney to schedule a free appointment with an advisor. You'll learn strategic ways to help meet your financial obligations, all while remaining focused on your own needs and dreams. With a well-crafted plan, you'll be ready for all of life's competing priorities. So schedule your free appointment today at planefe.com slash hermoney. I'm talking with Leanne Brown, author of the new cookbook, Good Enough. You know, at our core, we are a show about money. And so we talk about saving and budgeting in all its forms. I don't think we do enough food shows. So I'm very, very excited about this one. And I've got a bunch of questions for you. So first, what are the couple of best things to do if you're looking to cut back on your food budget? I go through budgets of a lot of different Mm -hmm. people. And I got to say, when I have them do the exercise of tracking their spending, which is one of the very first things that we do in our Finance Fix coaching program, and about week three, people are like, oh my God, I did not know how much of my money was going to food. Yeah. Well, it makes so much sense that that ends up being the place that a lot of folks are spending more than they mean to, I think, because it is such a place where it's a necessity, Mm-hmm. I think, and and so that makes us think like, okay, this is something I need to be doing. And it's also a place where we find a lot of our pleasure and where I think we look for comfort when we're struggling as well. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that. That is sort of appropriate. That's as it should be. But it also means that we can easily sort of be making choices or buying more of certain kinds of foods than we need or, you know, buying a lot of stuff and sort of letting it languish in the cupboard. I will say that probably something that will trickle down into your finances really quickly and make a difference is really to begin to simplify in terms of number of ingredients that you're using per recipe, like creating recipes more of the time, you know, like, of course, we all have something special that we love to make. And that can be like 25 ingredients. And that's like your special thing and go for it. But in general, sort of if the bulk of your meals are sort of five to 10 ingredients per meal. I think that that's a really great way to cut budget down and also to, frankly, like simplify your time as well. And you can do that by buying ingredients like pasta and some kind of a starch, like always having that around, having canned tomatoes, eggs, like things that you're using across multiple meals. Or actually, you know what, Dean, 
I'm thinking of the stew that you mentioned, which is a lot like there's a recipe in Good Enough called chorizo and hearty, what do I call it? Fast white bean chorizo and hearty green stew. And so it's a lot of the same things. And that recipe, much like all the recipes in the book, it's like a building block. It's, you know, a vegetable base. It's onions and peppers, but it could be, you know, carrots and celery. It could be any kind of thing you have around. And then taking some beans, I use white beans, like these classic combinations, but I've used pink beans, black beans, like it's all good. Any kind of bean will work. And that's sort of your lovely base and it comes together quickly. And then the flavor sort of ingredient that um, is just one thing, but sort of packs a punch of flavor is sausage. And I use chorizo sausage, but I've used Again, many different kinds of sausage. It could be anything. And like you were saying, you make a sausage and white bean stew and then you use broccoli rub, which is really like a hearty green. Could be Swiss chard or kale or anything like that. And so beans, greens, and vegetables that are sort of long lasting and some sausage, which can be frozen. Like these are things that you can sort of remix to make so many different kinds of meals. It's so Um, true. When I think about the things that I make over and over again, lemon, Olive right. oil, garlic, not so much onions because I'm not a, an onion lover, but I do have them but in garlic. the house. Mm-hmm. But garlic, red pepper, hot red pepper, mm-hmm. right? Salt and pepper, maybe a little chicken broth if I need it, maybe some canned tomatoes if I need it. But I can take that and I can make a meal with chicken. I can make a meal with pasta. I can exactly. make a meal with pork if I wanted. I could make a vegetarian meal with a couple of cans of beans. I'm not a bean soaker. It takes too long for me, but I do keep cans in the pantry. And so, yeah, I think you're totally right. What are your favorite budget meals? Those that are ideally quick as well as cheap. Well, I would first, just for variety, I would say, you know, check out Good and Cheap because it's full of those and it is freely available. I love stews and soups, I think are absolutely wonderful, especially at this time of year. And I have a whole section called Stuff on Toast. (laughs) I love that. My favorite Top Chef contestant was Carrie because she made everything on Fancy Toast. That was her thing, Fancy Toast. And it was amazing. It's fun. It's good. And it's such a lovely way you can, you know, you can reuse leftovers. You can kind of take some vegetables that you have or some kind of leftover saucy kind of thing and kind of remix that. It's a really lovely way to make a very simple meal out of kind of whatever you happen to have around. And I think there is something really affirming about making a meal like that because it's using up, you know, we might sort of have the bandwidth to maybe plan three or four maybe meals a week that are like, okay, I bought the ingredients and I made those things. And then in between, it's like you have leftovers, you kind of like are making do in those times. And I think those are, you know, stuff on toast, like a funny salad that you put together out of like little bits. Like these are the sorts of meals that get you through. And sometimes those can be some of the most delicious and fun discoveries. And at the same time, I think you also need to be open to, sometimes you might put together like a little Franken bowl that like, doesn't work great. Mm-hmm. I think that's another time to just know that that's a completely normal part of the process. I know that so many people will come up to you and be like, oh, I'm a bad cook because, you know, sometimes I make things that don't work out well. And I just want to say like, yeah, of course. Yes, of course. And all of us, all of us, that's part of learning any skill. Again, just like we don't want to judge ourselves by other people's standards. I think we also don't want to judge ourselves always purely on taste 
because sometimes it's not going to taste, it isn't going to be the best thing ever, but what other values is it giving you? Like, for example, if I made something out of leftovers that I wasn't too thrilled with, I'm still like proud that I'm using the leftovers well yeah. and that I was creative in some way. And I'm still, and I'm also always proud when I nourish myself. Like it's still to get a meal into your body during times like these where it really is difficult is in itself, like it is a real accomplishment. I don't mean that in a like, oh, let's all, ooh, like it's really important just to notice where we're at. Like life actually is harder right now. Like that is valid and we need to be kind to ourselves in the way that we go through that rather than holding ourselves up to these sort of high standards to be amazing every single day. Yeah. Can I just point out what an important thing you just said about leftovers? We had leftovers for dinner last night, which meant that we had a little bit of the steak that I made when we had company. We had a little bit of this. I made this amazing brown rice that had some lemon in it. Again, lemon Mm. for me, a big ingredient. I am a huge citrus fan too, like especially the zest. Yep. It had lemon zest and lemon juice and some shallots. And and it was just, you know, it was just a simple brown rice peel-off basically, but so good. So that was left over and that held up really well. Brown rice holds up better than white rice. We had some fish that was left over and you you never know with leftover fish, but we (laughs) ate it. I made some string beans because we needed something green to go with it. But like now I'm out of leftovers and we can start over and we throw out, I mean, Americans waste, I think the number is 40% of our food budgets because Mm -hmm. we throw things away. So eat your leftovers. Yes. And that's the other reason why that simplifying tip also creates less waste because when you're not buying so many different things to use small amounts of them in these recipes, then you don't end up with things languishing like on shelves or in the back of the fridge as frequently. We sort of focus on just a couple of maybe interesting like flavor enhancing pastes or something cool like that, that you're playing with at a time rather than sort of buying a gazillion different things. It's just more realistic. It feels like kind of a downer because sometimes there's something beautiful about like going on a shopping trip and being like, oh, I'm just so excited about all this fresh produce and I have all these plans and everything. And I know like I can get carried away in that sort of space and go like, oh, I'm going to make this and this and this and this and this. And it's like we need to, Mm -hmm. I think, sometimes slow our roll a little bit and go like, there's time. To me, like, it's wonderful to have a list of all those things that I want to do, but maybe I can do two of those this week and I'll do two of those like next week rather than I'm going to do them all, you know, now. Yeah. Because I think that's sometimes how waste really creeps up on us. And then also like the other thing is just fridge management, you know, like when we have leftovers, it really is important to remember and to eat them and then to check before we go to the grocery store again, leftovers in the fridge and in the freezer too, to sort of see, you know, actually, do I still have food? Do I even need to begin to sort of renew some of these things yet? I just love that term, fridge management. We are we are assigning a story on the 10 things you need to know about fridge management. I'm just putting that on my list. It's real. It's, it's true. It is yeah. so true. Before we wrap this up here, Inflation is hitting all of us. Mm -hmm. It's hitting us in the grocery store. It's hitting many people hard. When you go into the grocery store and you realize all of a sudden that the price of that chicken that you were going to buy has doubled, what are your favorite swaps? Like if you're staring this in the face and you're thinking, oh my gosh, I am not paying that for this. What do you do instead? So I think, well, you brought up chicken. And so I think that's something when it comes to meat, sort of meat and dairy tend to be 
pretty expensive. They have been for years and it sort of only goes up. And that's sort of appropriate because of, you know, the way they're raised. And what I generally do is use basically less of that in my meals. Mm. It's not to say we're cutting it out, but we're thinking of the stew. The meat in that is sort of the flavoring. It's part of it. It's an important part of it, but it's not the center of the plate. Whereas like a whole roast chicken, not to say that doing a whole roast chicken isn't within a budget. I think it often very much is. But when we eat maybe like boneless, skinless chicken breast three or four nights a week, that really can add up as sort of the center of the plate. So rethinking using protein in like that in smaller sort of quantities across maybe like a rice dish, like you were saying, or a pasta dish, or in a soup or a stew with sort of other vegetables. And the other thing, I know we tend to really idealize fresh produce. That is also a place where it's very expensive, especially like bagged, fancy, or stuff that's been pre-chopped. That kind of thing can be really expensive. And, and, you know, you can manage that through the seasons, and there are deals, and there can be great value. But canned and frozen Fruits and vegetables are great too. And not even just like they're tasty and they really are just as good, but also like they're so handy sometimes. Like frozen chopped spinach is amazing. Like I'd much rather have that than fresh most of the time. It's much quicker to sort of use in most of the ways that I want to. Something like a, you know, frozen cauliflower is already Mm -hmm. chopped into florets for you. Like I love cauliflower and I have sort of a habit of buying it fresh, but I've been realizing over the last few months, I'm like, I buy this frozen. I actually like can just take it out, put it on my little tray and like covered in spices and roasted. And like, it's so fast and easy and it's less expensive as well. And so I really do recommend, yeah, looking for things in different forms in canned and frozen. All right. Let's ask you the last meal question. If you had to pick a last meal and you were going to make something from your good enough book, what would it be? (sighs) Maybe I would go for... I have a salmon dinner pie. It's like a chicken pot pie, but with salmon and potatoes and dill and lemon. And it's just like really hearty and warming and delicious and has like a pastry top. And it's really good. It's just like very much to my taste. (laughs) I'm so making that. I am so making that. Anything that dill and lemon are like two of my favorite words. Amazing. So amazing. Leanne Brown, thank you so much for doing this with us today. Thank you for letting us off the hook when it comes to expecting perfection from our kitchens. The book is good enough. Where can we find more about you? Well, my website, leannebrown.com, or I'm also on Instagram. I'm Leanne E. Brown on there. I would absolutely love to hear from you. We'll be back in just a moment with Catherine Tuggle and your mailbag. But let me just take a moment to point out that Her Money and this program are supported by BCU. BCU measures its success by empowering members to achieve their financial goals. The credit union wants your banking experience to be authentic and to be friendly, which is why its products let you bank in confidence and its caring service gives you peace of mind. See if you're eligible for what BCU has to offer at www.bcu.org. And Catherine Tuggle joins me right now. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. Loved Leanne. I'm so glad we had her. Me too. How's your cooking game these days? I have like three things that I do really well. And beyond that, I just Google something and see what happens. 
but I love a one pot dish. Whenever you were talking about soups and stews, that, that really spoke to me. Anything I can just throw in and let it go is my favorite thing. I know. It's the desire to always have vegetables that sometimes throws me off my game, right? So if I'm making a one-pot dish and that one-pot dish is carb-heavy or protein-heavy but not especially vegetable-heavy, then I always feel like I have to do something else. So when I do these one-pot dishes, oh, and the vegetables, in order to qualify in my book, they kind of have to be green, right? So like mushrooms it's nice. It's a vegetable, but it can't really be the only vegetable on the table. Or carrots. Vegetable, yes, but like it doesn't quite feel like it qualifies for having something green on the plate. And sometimes that throws me off my one-pot meal. Yeah, and I love those dishes too because you can use all of the things that are past their prime. The carrots that are a little dried out or the kale that is a little wilty. It can just go into a soup and live up to its full potential. And when I think about food waste, I think about my family, my parents in particular. They did not earn high salaries. They earned very modest salaries my whole life, but they built wealth not because of their earnings, but because of the way they saved and spent. Mm -hmm. And everything in our house was used. And food waste to this day is a huge pet peeve of mine. One of the first times I met my husband's best friend, we were at his apartment and he was making a recipe that called for half a bell pepper. He chopped off the bottom half of the bell pepper and threw the entire top half of the bell pepper in the trash. Oh, no. And I fished it out of the trash and rinsed it off and ate it with hummus. And I think everyone in this apartment was horrified and I didn't care. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. I was raised much the same way. My mother had a great ability to stretch a dollar in the grocery store and to do it in a way where we didn't even realize what she was doing. You know, I mean, we had a regular... And and I think it's a bit of a Jewish thing. Like there are dairy meals. Like if you grew up kosher, I did not grow up kosher, but my parents grew up kosher and you didn't mix milk and meat. And so my mother had kind of a repertoire of dinners that were dairy. And so we had a regular macaroni and cheese night and she would make macaroni and cheese and tuna salad and a green salad because there was always a green salad. And... I think that was a very, very inexpensive meal because the mac and cheese was the mac and cheese out of the box. And we totally didn't realize it. We always look forward to Wednesday nights. I love that. It's always the comfort food meals that mean the most. Although I do have to say, if you're making the macaroni and cheese out of the box and you can step it up just like an iota, I think that buying the box that has the actual can of cheese rather than the powdered cheese makes it so much better. Yeah, that's such a good point. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't even used to say it was Velveeta, but now they say it's Velveeta, which is, it is what it is. My dog loves Velveeta. We use Velveeta when we fill Kongs to keep him busy when we're doing things like podcasting so that he's not making so much noise. We always fill them and and seal them with a little bit of Velveeta before we put it in the freezer, which I I know. One of these days when we're editing the podcast, I'm going to leave in the section where you scream across the apartment, give him a Kong. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. 
He's tired now. He's sleeping under the table. But um, yeah, very, very nice. Anyway, let's take some questions. Yes. Our first question comes to us from Andrea. She writes, Hi, Jean. I'm a longtime listener, first-time writer. Where to start? I'm Andrea. I'm a 46-year-old wife, mother, and teacher. I've been teaching in the public school system for 22 years. I live right outside Boston. Our income is $200,000 a year. My husband's in sales and has two lucrative side hustles. We have no credit card debt. Our mortgage is $300,000. It's a 20-year loan with an interest rate of 2.99%. We owe $103,000 on our HELOC. Our house is worth about $600,000, and we have one car loan of $19,000. In savings, we have $10,000. I opened a 403B the year I started teaching and currently have $421,000, and I'll also receive a pension when I retire from teaching. My salary is currently $105,000 a year, so I imagine 80% of my last three years when it comes time will be at least $90,000. This is just how teachers' pensions work, by the way, for anybody who isn't in the loop. My parents were teachers, so I get this, but it's based on your last three years teaching. 80% of her last three years average salary is $90,000. So she's going to actually get $90,000 a year once she retires for the rest of her life, which is amazing in these days when so few people get pensions. That is incredible. We have million-dollar life insurance policies, and I have a short-term disability policy. My husband has $232,000 in an IRA rollover and $10,000 in a Roth IRA. We started 529s the year our boys were born and have $45,000 and $27,000 in those. Our oldest son is 15 and in his first year in high school. Our youngest is 13 and in seventh grade. My question is, should I reduce the amount I contribute to my 403B for the next four to six years and increase my contributions to our boys' college accounts? My contribution to my 403B is $14,300 annually, and the college account contributions that I'm making are $300 and $250 per month, respectively. Thank you so much for your advice. First of all, Andrea, can I just say you guys are doing an incredibly great job. Um, I was thinking that. So, so amazing. Amazing because, yes, $200,000 a year as a household income is incredibly nice, but it's also clear that you are working so hard that you are really checking off the boxes, right, in terms of we're funneling money into retirement savings. We've put a lot away for college. We are making sure that we've got the lowest possible interest rate on our mortgages. I'd actually really love it if you would sit down with a financial advisor in order to answer this question. What I do think is that there will come a time when you will want to amp up the college and soft pedal the retirement a little bit. I'm just not sure that that time is right now. And my questions about the timing have to do with, number one, the 20-year mortgage. How long have you been in that house? How many years do you have left on those 20 years? Is the end of that 20-year mortgage going to coincide with when your youngest child, the 13-year-old, is in college? Because if so, then 
you're actually going to have additional cash flow at that point that you could use to pay directly against college. Or are your children, are your two boys the sort of kids who are A, superstars, either in the classroom or on the field? What are their aspirations for college? What kind of schools are they looking at? What are the price tags of those schools? Do you expect that you'll get some financial aid for them or do you not? All of those things would help you answer the questions. And what I don't want is for you to put so much into the 529s that it stands in the way of that financial aid. And I also don't want you to not funnel money into retirement and put it into college and then not have to use it. So I would say sit down with a financial advisor and run some some actual numbers, run some real projections, and also think about the kind of schools that you and your husband went to and that you are aspiring to for your boys. And I think that'll give you a much more detailed answer to the question. If going to see a financial advisor is not something that you feel comfortable doing, then I would just ask that you send me a little bit more information about both the mortgage and about the kind of schools and the kind of students that your kids are, and then we can try to figure it out a little bit more granularly. And I hope that helps. I hope you're not disappointed that it's not an absolute answer to the question. That's such a great point, Jean. There's going to be a lot of give and take in the years to come, and hopefully they can figure that out. Yeah, and I get it, right? You're totally on track for retirement, particularly with that pension and and the urge to back away from retirement and put a little more into college absolutely makes sense. And you will have to do it eventually. I just am not sure if the time to do it is now. Got it. Our last question today comes to us from Clara. She writes, Dear Jean, I've been listening to the Her Money podcast for almost a year now, and I can't thank you enough for all the wonderful financial advice. My fiance and I got engaged late last year, and although we've always saved and lived below our means, we've recently spent this last year getting our financial ducks in a row, and the Her Money podcast has certainly helped. Oh, well, thank you, and congratulations. I'm excited for what comes next for you. Yeah, thank you. My question has to do with savings priorities for youngish couples. We have a healthy emergency fund and want to focus now on other long-term goals, specifically saving for a house down payment versus retirement. He just turned 31 and is five years into a six-year PhD program, and I'm a teacher about to turn 30. Our current combined income is around $100,000 a year. For context, here's a look at our current account holdings. My Roth IRA has $7,000. His Roth IRA has $10,000. My 403B has $18,000 and I have 9,000 in a taxable brokerage account. I've also contributed about 36,000 to my defined benefits pension with CalSTRS. As an educator in California, my earnings as a teacher do not qualify for social security. We're on track to max out our Roths in 2022, and I contribute 700 a month, 11 times a year to my 403B. We have 50,000 saved up for a down payment, split between a high-yield savings account, a conservative investment portfolio, and I-bonds, and we send 400 a month to our down payment bucket. 
We currently live in California where real estate prices are sky high, so saving up for a down payment is important to me. However, my fiance's graduation and career trajectory make it likely that we'll need to move several times in the next few years, so I don't think homeownership is in our immediate future. Here's my question. After our wedding this coming April, we'll have an additional $400 in our budget each month. What would you recommend we do with it? Should we increase our down payment savings, increase my 403B contributions, or something else? We're not high earners, so I'd like to do what we can now to ensure a comfortable life for the family we want to have someday. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for a great question. And again, congratulations on the wedding. It sounds like you have really set yourselves up very well for all of these goals. And I would put the additional money into your 403B, and here's why. You want to max out your ability to save for retirement for your family overall, as well as to save for that down payment for your future home. You're already maxing out your Roths. If you weren't maxing out the Roths, I would say put the money in the Roths. But by putting it in your 403B, you're putting additional money toward retirement. The thing about Roth IRAs that not all that many people know is that the money can actually be used without penalty to buy your first home. And so not that I want you to rob retirement when it gets there, but by putting the money into your 403B, essentially you're giving your down payment money, if you think of it as Roth fungible assets. You're giving your down payment money the ability to grow without being taxed. And if it takes a decent number of years in order for that purchase of a home to happen, and believe me, I I know what this looks like. My father got his PhD and then we moved around the country for much of my childhood. That could be some time. So give yourself the ability to build as large a nest egg as possible and just understand that when it comes to your retirement assets, you may eventually want to tap just a little bit of them to supplement that down payment for your first home. Does that make sense? That's such a good point. I mean, in that way, you're kind of doing both, right? Yeah, it's kind of like people who think, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I really need to save for my retirement, but I feel really bad that I'm not saving enough for college for my kids. And one of my answers is always think about the Roth because you can pull Roth assets out with penalty and use them for education. Such a great point, Jean. Thank you for the great insight as always. Thank you, Catherine. And thanks everybody for writing. In today's Thrive, a look at some of the conversations you need to have before you get married. How appropriate. If you're recently engaged or if you've had a long engagement due to the pandemic, first of all, congratulations. When you think about getting married, what are some of the first things that come to mind? Maybe sharing a beautiful home or traveling together or jointly working towards making all your dreams come true. Some of your bigger life goals though, They'll require money and a lot of it, which is why one of the most important conversations to have before saying I do should be centered around your finances. 
At HerMoney.com, we've got a rundown on some of the most important conversations you should have before tying the knot. For starters, talk about how you're combining your finances or if you're combining them at all. You don't want your first year of marriage to be full of arguments about whose money is whose or who is spending more. Although you may want to keep separate accounts, keep in mind that having at least one joint account that you make deposits into each month can be really helpful administratively when it comes to covering those joint expenses. You need to figure out what you both want things to look like in the grand scheme and in that day-to-day spending. For more tips, check out our story at hermoney.com where you can also sign up for the Her Money Council. What's the Her Money Council? Well, it's a team of members of our community that we are tapping to become our advisors. You'll weigh in on research, events, content, big ideas for our brand, and you'll often have direct lines to the Her Money team. If you're interested, just follow the link in the show notes or email us at contact at hermoney.com and we'll get you added. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Leanne Brown for the fun food conversation. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We also want to thank our sponsors, Edelman Financial Engines and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.